The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Good to see everyone this morning. My name is Trevor. I am one of the pastors here at Ridgewood. If you're a newcomer, we are really glad that you're here with us this morning. We always ask our newcomers as they come in. Hopefully you got a newcomer's bag as you made your way in. We always ask our newcomers to fill out a newcomer's card and drop it in one of the offering boxes on the way out. Uh, I love being a part of Ridgewood. This is an incredible group of people. Uh, This is a very warm and hospitable group of people. And newcomers, just love that you're here. And uh, members of Ridgewood, be sure to welcome those who are in our midst who might be newcomers with us this morning. Now, as Adam just read, we have been studying through the book of Acts. We have been learning from saints that have gone before us, learning about mission and learning about life together, learning about faithfulness to the risen Lord Jesus and the lessons that are present for us in the book of Acts, the story of the earliest Christians. Now, the passage this morning, there's one really obvious application. Falling asleep in church could be fatal, right? <laughs> I remember a couple years ago, there's this guy. I won't say his name because some of you will remember him. He was an outstanding, upstanding member in every way. He was a part of our planting team, just an incredible guy. The definition of loyalty and faithfulness and hard work. He was early at everything. He stayed late for everything. He was present always. Just an absolute rock star of a member. However, Every Sunday, not some Sundays, not most Sundays, not occasionally on Sundays, every Sunday, as soon as the preaching started, this dude was, he was hitting the hay. (laughs) He was falling asleep within minutes, every single Sunday. You could could see it sort of descending on him. You could see the blinks or, you know, the, the, the blinking start to slow as you're teaching. You can see his breathing start to get deeper and heavier, and you could kind of see his his head nod and kind of do the thing where the head dips and dips. And then at some point, he would settle in, and he would sleep, and he would wake up as we sang our last few songs, and it was every Sunday. Now, fair warning for you. If, if this happens to you this morning, and what happens in the text were to take place, if someone were to pass away as I was teaching, I'm not certain that I have the gifts that Paul has. I don't know about the other elders, but I'm not certain that a resurrection, at least this morning, is in the cards for you. So, fair warning. So, how are we to read and think about this passage? I mean, the, the book of Acts is, a, is this story of the church triumphing, the story of the risen Jesus, the king over all nations who has triumphed over sin and death, reigning and, and ruling. And here we have this story of this guy, Eutychus, who goes down in the, the, you know, the stories of history as the guy who died while listening to Paul preach. How, how are we to fit this together with the rest of Acts? I'm excited to do that, hopefully, this morning, hopefully make sense about what this passage has to say to the church. Before we jump into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask him to bless our time this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray to you as the one who is indeed resurrected. We pray to you this morning as the, the man who right smack dab in the middle of history, walked out of the grave permanently. And Lord Jesus, you sit at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling. You were the king over all nations. And we see that, and we, we, we want to see more of that this morning. We, we, wanna, we want our hearts to be filled and our eyes to be filled and our bellies to be filled this morning, Jesus, with the, 
the incredible news of the gospel that you are the reigning resurrected king who offers pardon to those who repent. Lord Jesus, we come here this morning with divided hearts and divided loyalties. And we come this morning distracted and we come this morning, some of us, weary and heavy laden. We come, some of us this morning, hanging by a thread. We come, others of us this morning, bored out of our minds. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to each of us, that you would, that you would spark something in us, that you would wake us up and comfort us, Jesus, with this incredible story of the gospel. We pray for Ridgewood Church, and we pray knowing that, Lord Jesus, you put us here in this place at this time, and you have brought these people together by your sovereign hand. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be absolutely afire with the good news of what you've done for us. Just never, never cold to the gospel. Never cold to the stories in the scriptures like this one. Though they might puzzle us, though they might make us chuckle, may we never be dead to them and cold and indifferent to them. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a sense of your glory by your spirit through your word that would dry up apathy, that would dry up cultural Christianity, that would dry up churchiness. Would you draw every heart in this room to you this morning? For those that have been walking for decades with you, Jesus, would you draw them closer to you? For those who have been walking with you for for weeks, for days, would you draw us closer to you? We pray, Jesus, that we would not be indifferent to who you are and to what you have to say to us. God, we pray for our Backyard Bible Club coming in a couple of weeks. We pray for the kids of Ridgewood who are going to be hearing uh, the, the scriptures and who are going to be taught by these adults and, and who are going to be singing these songs. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use these seeds that are being sown to, to make yourself known, to open the hearts of these little ones to believe in you. We pray for the neighborhood kids and the three different neighborhoods represented in Backyard Bible Club who, who have no idea what divine encounter awaits them. Lord Jesus, we, we, we know that you have people in our city and so we go and we want to tell and we pray that you would save these children. We pray for the volunteers who are participating. We pray that you'd give them um, uh, the the strength and and all that's needed to pull off something like a Backyard Bible Club. We thank you for Hannah and her hard work in putting it all together. And we pray that you would bless our efforts. Lord Jesus, this morning, the things that we do not know, we pray that you would teach us. The things that we do not have, we pray that you would give us. And the things that we are not, we pray that you would make us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look again in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, over the last several weeks, we have been studying the third missionary journey that Paul has undertaken. And the, the book of Acts is obviously a, a large book. We're in the 20th chapter of the book. And way back in chapter 1, we're told by the Lord Jesus that the Holy Spirit is going to descend on his apostles and was going to send his apostles from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And what we've seen happening in the last several chapters is that very thing play out, specifically the, the ends of the earth piece. 
that people as far as Greece and Macedonia and Rome are coming to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus. The Jewish Messiah, whose status as the Messiah is affirmed in his resurrection, we see people from Europe and Asia placing their faith in Jesus, becoming a part of the Christian community. We see Jesus' promise in chapter 1 being played out here in chapter 20. Now, when we, when we read through these sections of Acts, it can be kind of disorienting because we're reading names and you get these pieces, uh, these people rather, and these places that we, we sort of don't know how to pronounce. We, uh, Adam and I had to consult how to say of the few names earlier. It can sometimes intimidate us. But there's actually some really helpful and important stuff if we pause and take a look at what Luke is telling us in verses like these. I have a map on the screen. We're going to look at two maps this morning. Recognize it might be a little bit challenging for those in the back, but hopefully you can see the colored circles. All right, so if you look all the way on the east, you see a purple circle. That's Jerusalem. That's ground zero for all of it. That's where Jesus' ministry was. That's, uh, is that, you guys are, is it not purple? Antioch, I'm sorry, Antioch. Jerusalem's at the bottom. Antioch, yeah, Jerusalem is where it all started in chapter one. Antioch, there you go, in the top right corner is where Paul was initially sent on his first missionary journey. Now, if you see the, the light green line, that indicates the places Paul went on his second missionary journey, the light green line, kind of on the top, right? Uh, I'm getting my wires all kinds of crossed. That's, that's just, Paul went to Ephesus, and then he went to Philippi, and then he went to Corinth, all right? Just, let's roll with it. Now, what's interesting about this is when he lands in Macedonia, the city of Philippi, which is mentioned here by Luke in these scriptures, this is actually where Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul, so so kind of Luke is just mentioning this in passing, and oh, by the way, 2 Corinthians happened during this time. Then Paul travels down to Corinth, down again in Greece, where he's already spent some time. There's already work that was taking place there, a church that was planted there, and he spends three months in the city of Corinth. And Paul is retracing his steps, serving with these churches and encouraging and strengthening these churches that have been planted months and years prior. Then the scripture tells us that Paul plans to go back to Syria, so he wants to go back to the purple circle. He wants to go through the Mediterranean, back to Syria. Paul is setting out ultimately to head back to Jerusalem. He's going to go across the sea into Antioch and then down south to Jerusalem. But what happens is he finds out that there's a plot against his life. That there's the, the Jews, the kind of shadow movement that's developed in response to Paul. They want to put Paul to death. And so, let's look at the second map. Paul resolves to come the way, to go back the way he came so that green line, that darker green line, indicates Paul kind of retracing his steps. And where we're at today is that purple circle in the city of Troas. Paul goes back the way he came. He stops to celebrate Passover in Philippi. Then he lands in Troas where he spends a week where we'll be in the second half of this passage today. Here then in verse 4, we get a list of folks that Paul is gathering together with him to take him back ultimately to Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 4. Sopater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But when we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. All right, so again, we, we, we read this, and maybe our tendency is for our eyes to kind of glaze over, and we get quickly past these bits so that we can get to the exciting bits about guys falling out of the window. But what's taking place here in these details? Well, again, Paul is headed back to the city of Jerusalem. He's been collecting money from these churches in this area. He plans to give a report about his, his mission to these Christians. We'll see this in coming weeks. Paul is a, a wanted man and is most certainly headed to death if he goes back to the city. Yet, 
Verse 16, chapter 20, Paul tells us that he is hastening to be back in Jerusalem. And there's this detail that's mentioned here. If possible, on the day of Pentecost. For those of you who are familiar with Acts, who've been with us as we studied this, think back to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. What takes place in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Well, they're celebrating the Feast of Weeks in Jerusalem, which is what Pentecost is celebrating. This incredible once-in-history moment occurs. That promised Holy Spirit of Jesus descends and empowers the apostles for mission. But think about the meaning of Pentecost. Think about the Feast of Weeks that the Lord commanded the people of Israel to celebrate. What was the Feast of Weeks a feast in honor of? The harvest. The harvest. It was a harvest festival for the people of Israel. In Leviticus 23, the Lord commands Israel to celebrate this feast, to celebrate the first fruits that he has provided in the harvest. And it tells us that Paul is gathering up all of his buddies from these different cities in Europe and Asia, and he's like, I gotta get back to Jerusalem. I gotta get back by the time of Pentecost. Because the Lord is harvesting the nations. And Paul is going back to show the people at Jerusalem the first fruits of the nations, just like God has always purposed to do. In Genesis 12, when he calls out Abraham, he tells Abraham, I'm going to use you and your family, and you're going to be a blessing to the whole world, to all nations. And so Paul is seeing it happen in real time. He's like, we've got to get Trophimus, and we've got to get Tychicus. We've got to get all of these guys together so that we can go back to Jerusalem and show folks that Jesus is doing it. He is harvesting the nations as he always promised he would. In Isaiah chapter 49, the prophet envisions a day when the nations would be gathered in. The prophet, when speaking about redeeming the nation of Israel from exile some several hundred years before these events, the Lord through the prophet says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too easy just to redeem Israel for exile. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. The point is, is that God has always been intent on gathering the nations into himself. That even at the calling of Israel, it was about seeing the nations being welcomed in through the work of the family of Abraham. And here, Paul, he goes to the end of the earth and he gathers up these believing, Christ-following Gentiles who have submitted themselves to the exalted Messiah of Israel from Berea and Thessalonica and Derbe, from Europe and Asia to say, look what's been harvested. Look what God has done. He's gathering the nations to himself. Now let's just pause and reflect on this for a second. We look around this room, I mean, what we have to realize we are the nations. We are the ends of the earth that have been harvested in by the spirit of the Lord Jesus through faithful saints who have gone before us. You and I are the nations. You know, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, when it says, I'll make you a light for the nations, and it says that my salvation may reach the end of the earth, Greer was included in the scope of what God intended to do through Jesus. And here we are, the fruit of these stories in the book of Acts. And you're, maybe you're here this morning and you are really skeptical about all of this and skeptical about Christianity. You have, you have doubts about the Bible and the existence of God. But this says something about our faith. The, the fact that we are still here, still reading these stories, still talking about this same Jesus. That we have been harvested by God's Holy Spirit into King Jesus. We are the nations. We, we are this 
working itself out in present tense. And yet there is still work to do in the nations, right? I mean, Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful. There is still harvesting yet to be done. You know, I picture Paul kind of arriving back in Jerusalem with the first fruits, and he's like, you guys, there is more where that came from. I love reading history and been reading recently about pioneers. You know, these guys who go out west, somebody strikes gold. And you just kind of, you think about these stories where someone goes out west and they strike gold and then they write a letter back home, you know, dearest Susanna, I have come across Texas tea, black gold, oil, or whatever. Send people. There's, there's more, there's more. There's more to be harvested out here. There's, there's more to discover. There is more gold available to us here. In a way, Paul is returning with the first fruits of the harvest, and and I wonder if he's doing it to to invite people to join him, to labor in the task of continuing to harvest the nations for the Lord Jesus. I just wonder if it could serve as a kind of invitation for us this morning, just to think about. We recognize that not everyone in this room is called to be a capital M missionary, right? To, To relocate and go to Halifax. But some of you are. And maybe it's through passages like this and small moments and sermons like this where you feel like maybe Jesus is inviting you to participate in this same harvest. I wonder if you could read this and see Paul bringing back the goods, bringing back these brothers and sisters as a kind of invitation to join him in the work. And and maybe for you, one thing you need to do this morning is to just pray in response to this about whether or not Jesus, by his spirit, is stirring that within you. Turkey or Canada or Mexico or who knows where. Let's keep reading, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Right, so we're told in verse 7 that as they've landed in Troas and they've started their, uh, their, their concluding rather their ministry uh, that took place over the course of the week, we have this seemingly small detail about it being the first day of the week when they were gathered. Seems like it's just setting the stage for what's about to take place, but it actually points to something really significant that's happened in Christian worship. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. What's the day Jews were commanded in the Old Covenant to worship? The Sabbath day? What day of the week is that? And yet Christians are now apparently worshiping on Sundays here. Chapter 20, verse 7. Why the shift? What's taking place? We take for granted that we worship on Sundays. For, for many of us, especially Southern Christians, of, of which I am the foremost, Sunday is synonymous with church and, and Sunday dinner and naps. It's not always been the case. Something has taken place and developed in the practice of these earliest Christians so that they were gathering for worship on Sunday. The reason that this change took place, that this shift happened, is this really Important thing happened on the Sunday a couple of decades prior to this. On the first day of the week, what took place? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It seems like Jesus' resurrection at some point becomes the reason that Christians begin worshiping on Sunday. Those who are in Christ are not bound by the old covenant. So the Sabbath as a formal day of worship is not binding on Christians. The Christians commemorating the resurrection of Jesus and all of, all of what the resurrection means, they begin worshiping on Sunday. And we get a picture of that here in this scripture. We get a glimpse into what took place in those early Christian gatherings. First day of the week, they're singing and they're praying. Verse 9. And they're dying. Verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, 
sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This is the last night that Paul is spending in Troas. They're three stories up, probably in the home of a wealthy member who provided the space for this church to gather. Paul's been teaching for a long time. He's teaching late into the evening. And and it's probably not because Paul is long-winded and he's just droning and droning and droning. Probably what's taking place is that the people at Troas are hungry for teaching. It's like Paul's trying to land the plane and they keep beckoning, Paul, keep going. We want more. We want more. And so Paul teaches still longer, still longer. He he keeps going and he's going and he's going. And, And out of hunger, in response to their hunger for the word, Paul keeps preaching. Have you ever been that, at that point in your life where you were just ravenous when it came to teaching and the Bible? You just wanted more, and you wanted more, and you wanted more. Seems like that's what the people at Troas are doing. They're, they're calling Paul, keep going, keep going. This is your last night with us. Keep teaching us, Paul. Verse 8 tells us that it's late into the night and that there's a lot of candles in the room. Right? You don't have uh, the, the clapper you know, to turn on lights in, in ancient, Palestine, or, uh, ancient uh, Troas, right? So they have lots of candles in the room that are sort of giving this warm glow, maybe warming the room up, maybe sucking oxygen out of the room. And so there's this guy named Eutychus who finds his way to a window. Now, when we think about windows, we think about our little windows that exist in our houses that are always closed. We think about our little four-foot-tall, few-feet-off-the-ground windows that typically are intended to just let in light. But in the days before AC, they would have in spaces like this these large windows that were intended to to let there be some open air, right? And so Eutychus is struggling. He's starting to do the head nod thing. He makes his way to the window so that he can stay awake and listen to the teaching. He perches up on the side of the window. I used to do this very same thing in 10th grade math class with Miss Henderson. She always let me slide my desk over to the window. It was the, maybe you remember these high school days. It It was the class immediately after lunch. And it's like, man, that chicken sandwich and that chocolate milk was sitting real heavy. <laughs> and uh, every day, why do, we, why do we drink chocolate milk and eat chicken sandwiches for lunch every day? Um, but it, it was sitting real heavy in math class, and Miss Henderson would let me slide my desk over to the window. And I guess it was probably better than me falling asleep or acting a fool. She let me, although occasionally I would kind of open the window and throw things at my classmates as they would walk by. The young man, Eutychus, probably 8 to 14-year-old boy, possibly a slave, possibly having worked all day, sitting late into the night listening to Paul's teaching, sitting on the edge of the window with the warm glow and the warmth of the candles. He falls asleep, he falls out the window, and he dies. Some speculate when they read this passage that Eutychus didn't actually die, that he was just unconscious as a result from his fall. But a few things to that. First, three stories is a long way to fall, typically. Typically, I mean, you could survive that, but that's a long way to fall, one. Second, it's presumptuous to assume that ancients don't know the difference between dead and out cold. What's more, Luke, the author of Acts, is by profession what? A doctor. And notice in verse 7, it says, we, Luke, was present for this. So presumably, Dr. Luke would know the difference between unconscious and dead. I mean, it's certain that this kid died from this fall. It's tragic. I mean, it really is. We laugh. But it really is a tragic situation. Now, what do you think Paul was teaching on? It's, he's teaching the, 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 these people in the city of Troas. Verses 10 through 12. I mean, what, what do we think he's teaching about? I mean, what we know based on Paul's sermons elsewhere is that Paul is teaching on the resurrection of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and how his resurrection affirms his status as Messiah. And watch this. 
Let's read in verses 10 through 12. But Paul went down and bent over him, bent over Eutychus, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. You talk about a fantastic sermon illustration. He's probably teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Eutychus falls out the window dead. They bring him to the upper room, and Paul has the opportunity to resurrect this guy, to, to lend credence to all of the things that he has been talking about up to this point. We're told that he's laying down dead. Paul goes down. He says he's not dead. His life is in him. And then he actually resurrects this boy in a manner that's reminiscent of other stories in the Bible. The young man wakes up and comes back to life. I mean, it's, it's worth noting that this resurrection account here is very similar to two other stories that took place with Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, both in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 24. There's a resurrection in a very similar fashion. In both stories, a young person dies. In both stories, they're in the upper room. In both stories, the prophet lays on top of the dead child. And in both, these miracles serve as affirmation that this prophet is a messenger of God. And so it seems that Luke, when crafting these stories, and Paul, when, when undertaking this method of resurrection, he wants to call to mind the story of Elijah and Elisha. The young man dies. Paul brings him back to life. And Paul is affirmed as a messenger of God. And this resurrection tells us something about Paul, but more than that, it tells us something about Jesus. If Eutychus is alive, Paul is right about these stories of the resurrection. And that means Jesus is alive. And that means, verse 12, they were no little comforted. In other words, big comfort as a result of this. Majorly comforted. Comforted knowing that, yes, Eutychus is alive. But more than that, that they have just seen before their very eyes a miracle that affirms Paul's message. Jesus is for real. So as you read this, I mean, I wonder if one kind of takeaway for us is we could just take big comfort in Jesus. Be no little comforted by this story. Jesus turns tragedy turns weeping into laughter, bringing Eutychus back to life. Jesus will make all sad things untrue. Resurrection, Christian, is your destiny. All of our prayers for healing are either yes or not yet. Take big comfort in knowing that. Big comfort. Take big comfort knowing that the stories are true and that Jesus is all that they say that Jesus is. Take big comfort knowing that your sins are forgiven Jesus died for you so that you could have life with God forever. Take no little comfort in what Christ has done. But I think there's also something to the sleep element of this passage. What does the Bible tell us about sleep? You notice that there's kind of a, a reoccurring discussion about sleep in the scriptures? Sometimes sleep is a really good thing. It's a God-given thing. Sometimes God tells us people, just take a nap, sleep it off, you'll be all right. Get some black coffee, and when you wake up, you'll be good. Sleep is a good thing, to be sure. Sometimes, in, like in Psalm chapter 3, sleep is a sign of confidence in God. It's one of my favorite psalms. It says, I look out, and I see a myriad of enemies. I see the multitudes against me, so I sleep. I go to sleep because the Lord will handle it, and I wake up alive and refreshed because God has sustained me. But other times, sleep is not so good. Sleep is sometimes a, a stupor. 
We get that. Sometimes being sleepy is, is a, a, a way to speak of your ambivalence or your obliviousness. Three times in the book of Isaiah, the prophet calls the people of Israel to wake up. Awake, arise, wake up, people. Chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you, have, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In each of these, the prophet is calling the people of Israel to wake up and see that the Lord is doing something in their midst. Twice Paul calls his readers in Ephesus and Rome to wake up. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And probably most famously, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, says to his sleepy disciples in Luke 22, verse 46, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then interestingly, in the second half of this very chapter, in Acts 20, 28 and 20, 31, Paul calls those that he's speaking to there, calls them to attention, calls them to be alert. He uses language of being awake. And so I wonder if there is something of a symbolic meaning here for Christians. A call to be alert, a call to be awake, a call to be awake to the resurrection, the story of Jesus. And maybe the way that we walk away kind of fed by this passage is by receiving a call to wakefulness. Not necessarily in sermons, but maybe not. Maybe necessarily in sermons. What would it look like for us to wake up to the reality of what is happening in the world through the Spirit of the Lord Jesus? What would it look like for us to wake up to the reality of what is taking place here in our midst as we speak? The Holy Spirit moving and working and being active in his people. The enemy working to distract us and opposing every move of the Spirit. I, mean, I think this is actually a really timely word for us in our uber-distracted age. Maybe our drowsiness doesn't look like literal drowsiness. Maybe it just looks like a craned neck into a glowing rectangle constantly. Maybe it just looks like boredom, where everything's flat and gray and the same, and everything's numb and nothing matters. And we feel this, and so we medicate ourselves with those little glowing rectangles that never let us sit in silence or experience the slightest unpleasant feeling. We live in a dopamine stupor 24-7, fidgeting, moving always, but paradoxically, always bored, skimming the surface of everything. Unable to sit in silence and quiet before God and to consider things of substance because we just don't have the brain space for it. There's a French mathematician, a guy named Blaise Pascal, who would definitely not approve of what I did in 10th grade math class. He's writing in the 17th century, the 17th century about his generation. He says this, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided, in order to be happy, not to think about such things. I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to sit quietly in his room. 
He goes on to say, what's our solution to this inability to just sit and consider difficult things? Diversion, distraction, dopamine-fueled glowing rectangles. I mean, are, are we awake to reality? Do we have quiet and space to think and really consider our souls before God? I mean, to really wrestle with questions of ultimate importance. Maybe the road to hell is not paved with good intentions, but rather the soft blue glow of a screen that never lets you think. Are you awake to the fact that you will die one day? All of us. As young and beautiful as you are right now, your body will decay and it will break and you will die. Our lives are unspeakably fragile. We are on the precipice at every moment. Are you awake to the fact that you are an eternal being and you will be with God or apart from God forever? That heaven and hell are real places and Satan and his demons and God's justice are real things? Are you awake to your soul that is being thinned and hollowed by a diet of nothingness? Are you awake to your sin, sin that is killing you? that you are nursing and dabbling in, but will condemn you to hell? Are you awake to your neighbors who do not believe and are destined for either heaven with God or hell apart from him? Are you awake to the return of Jesus? The hour has come. Salvation is nearer than the day that we believed, and every moment we are inching more closely to the return of the Lord Jesus. Are you awake to the reality of these things? Or is it just more pleasant to scroll? Maybe the point of this passage is a call to wakefulness. Maybe there's also something to be said about sleeping in sermons. Now, I mean, preachers of all people should not be boring. There, it is, to be a boring preacher is something that needs to be worked on. I, I mean, for me, a preacher that can drone on and on with no umph in his belly about this stuff is a complete mystery to me. And I'm with you on that. I agree with you. There's a, there's a preaching book that's actually called Saving Eutychus, which is a, a fine book, but an outstanding preaching book title, Saving Eutychus. That's great. What does it say about us that the people of Israel were hesitant to even utter the name of God, and yet we walk away on Sundays preoccupied with the quality of the sermon or the sound mix or concerned about the line at the meet and three, completely unmoved by the songs and scripture readings? Does God rest so lightly upon us that nothing that happens here matters, that it does nothing to us? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I completely understand. But man, could we be awake to the things of God, awake and hungering for truth, hungering for God himself, like the church at Troas, just ravenous for God and his word and find comfort in him and just find ourselves electrified by the name of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what, what I hope you hear me saying to you is this. That though you, you may think that all of this is nuts, there is more that is going on than meets the eye. Always. The scriptures tell us that God made us and that he exists in an altogether different plane of existence. He's infinitely far away and yet impossibly near. He holds our every breath. And we have sinned against the God who made us. And our conscience bears witness to this. We sit in our condemnation. We know it that we are condemned. And so we distract ourselves with screens and music and anything but silence because we know that something is wrong in here. And and what's more, there are malevolent forces in the world that would love nothing more than to constantly crowd out any reflection on this stuff. 
with content, the content, all the content, all the time. But God, in his mercy, who sees us in our sin, loves us and provides his son Jesus so that we can have new life in him. He sends his son Jesus to die for the sin that we committed, to bear the judgment we deserve, to break the power of the enemy over us. And all that it takes to be saved is to just wake up to the reality of this truth. It's to just wake up and see the truth about our sin before a holy God and receive the salvation that he offers to us in Jesus. Wake up and be no little comforted by the gospel. It's our prayer that you would hear this and you would wrestle with this. And I would even invite you to pray that God would show himself to you and would expose who you are to you. And God would would break you so that you would receive the pardon that he offers. If you're here this morning and you're Christian, I, I would just ask, what does waking up look like for you? Are you cold to the things of God? Are you bored with the stories of the gospel? Are you sleeping in church? Maybe not literally, but maybe literally. Maybe you're here and you are impenetrable. You are inoculated and immunized and you are shielded against anything that I have to say up here. You say you profess Jesus, but you are completely flatlining. How do you need to wake up this morning? Are you asleep in evangelism? Are you asleep in your pursuit of holiness? Are you asleep in your delight of Jesus? Are you asleep in the... The way that you care for your family, dads, the way that you try and raise them up in the Lord, are you asleep and how sloppy you are towards your spouse, towards your husband, towards your wife? Our prayer is that you would wake up this morning and that you would not leave here unmoved. And I would invite you as we kind of have this time of reflection in a couple of moments to just pray, Jesus, don't let me be unmoved to these things. Light something in me. Wake me up. Give me faithfulness and love and passion for you, Jesus. Now, some of you hear me say this, and, and all you can hear is, and all you can think is, Trevor just wants all of us to be excitable and extroverted. And, and because Trevor is excitable and extroverted. That, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, you, you know where you're asleep at the wheel. And, and would, you, would you invite Jesus to break that and, and to wake you up and to alert you to reality? It's our prayer that as a church, we would awake and be comforted. Awake and be comforted that Jesus is alive and he is at work, as at work as he's ever been. He is not removed from us. He is near to us. He knows us. He loves us. And he prays for us. Would we awake and be comforted, church family? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and that you would give us clarity on how you want us to respond. We pray for renewal for the sleepy. We pray for strength for the weak. And we pray for salvation for the unbelieving. Lord Jesus, we look to you with confidence and we look to you um, with affection and we want to look to you with more confidence and more affection. Lord Jesus, would you draw us to yourself, make yourself known in us this morning. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.